From an undisclosed location somewhere east of the Mississippi, it is the J3 Amateur Hour Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to J3. I'm your host, Jordan. I'm here with... This is Josh. Yoel. By the way, do you think I just plan that out? No, I just... As as we go, I just... Right off my you know, sleeve. You know that if you told me... If you asked me if it was east or west Mississippi, I would have no idea. I had to think... That's you my really pause. Wouldn't? That was no, my, that no was my pause. That was my pause. I'm like, okay, we're... I know we're okay, east of Mississippi. We have a very special guest tonight, and that would be Rifki Isformis Bass, a near and dear friend to some of us. Josh, I know that you actually went to high school with her, and uh, you left a big impression, even though you were a freshman and she was a senior. I did. I actually couldn't believe it, but the listeners will soon hear. I'm looking forward to hear you know, about her memories with Josh in high school. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of events that go on in high school. I know we have a lot of you know former Ida Crown listeners. There's you know Winter Review... There's Hanukkah banquets, you know. There's all these different events that go on. I think on. those are the same event. No, not not in the past. Not in those times. Yeah, no, they, no. Now they put all together. I think like on perm or something. Like right, that. right. Oh, and they also have like the school trip, like in the beginning of the year. Getting we, to know you trip. Shout out to orienteering. Yes, we went. Um, yes, Pearlstein Center. Yeah, I mean, you drive out where, and then you do nothing, and then you just drive back for like two <laughs> hours. Waste of a day. But I'm looking forward to hearing all of her experiences with Josh. I'm sure he was a very memorable freshman. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, Rifki's father sadly uh, passed away pretty recently, and so hearing about her life, but also about her father, I think um, will be very informative and meaningful and to I think a lot of people. The entire family, really. Absolutely right. I mean, a lot of you know our guests, and you know, shine light on Chicago now, Chicago then, things that we deal with, you know, in our day to day lives. So I am very much looking forward to hearing what she has to say. Same, guys. Here we go. Gentlemen, we are here with a very special guest who we thank so much for coming tonight, and that would be Rifki Isformis Bass. Good evening, Rifki. Good evening. I'm Welcome to the show. excited to be here. Thank you. Our second female, correct? And the first non-politician female. Yes. Correct. I mean, I, I just don't know because you guys recorded many episodes without me, so I don't know if I was correct or not. So Yol was in Israel. I don't know if you listened I, to the I last listened one. to them, yeah. So, okay. I was actually going to stay longer, but I, I heard Rifki was here, so I came in early. So. Oh. Well, I was thinking on the way here how I'm connected to all three of you. Let's hear. So Yoel and I grew up across the street from each other. I grew up on Jarvis and Fairfield, and he was diagonal. Do you remember him from that time? I remember going to his house, and it was all boys, so there was lots of Legos in the playroom. (laughs) Lots of Legos. And his parents were super sweet and kind and gentle, totally the opposite of my crazy family. (laughs) But our parents were friends, and I do remember... I've living across your, the street from you. Used to go to the pool sometimes. The That's pool right. Back. That's right. Josh. Please. And I met about, got to know each other about 10 years ago when I started working for Greystone and we were competition. But wow. We, yes. <laughs> that is true. However, we never stepped on each other's toes. And at the time I really didn't know what I was doing and I would call him for advice 
and for him to explain things to me. And he was very kind. And he's looking like he doesn't remember that. <laughs> I do. I think, yeah, yeah. But he was very, it was, very... It was, it was my pleasure. Yeah, it was very nice of you to help me along. So that's how we got to know each other. And thank you for not working there anymore. Yes, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, first of all, Rifki, weren't you in high school with Josh? I, I was going to point that out. No, but I, didn't I don't remember there. us being in high exactly. school. Exactly. There I, you I, go. I was a freshman and you were a senior. So you wouldn't Okay, I definitely did not pay yeah. attention to you. And Jordan, well, there's double thing going on here because A, I remember you when you were a little itty bitty boy, but then when you babysat for my kids and our parents are friends, but your dad was my dad's a student in Hebrew school at the Lincolnwood congregation. Correct. And your dad always had this great story about how my dad, in order to be in his class, the boys had to wear tzitzis. And when your dad tells a story, he's always cracking up. And he says that he, the boys went home and started coming to the class in Sitsis. And the mothers came into the classroom with pitchforks and fire and were screaming that my dad was having them join a cult. And uh, they were all very, very upset about it. But a lot of the kids grew up and became from and had from families and grandchildren. And many students come up to me and say, your father was our Hebrew school teacher. And because of him, our family is now religious. So your dad is very you know, fond memories of my dad. Of and so R- we're connected I, 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 to I two different ways. I hate to disappoint ways. you, but there's no way no, Jordan is wearing tzitzis no. right now. <laughs> Not a chance. But it also, at least his siblings, his siblings are Orthodox. His siblings are from. Yes, his siblings yes. are from. So He's it did work. It did work to some degree. To some degree. So let's start there, Rifki, because yes, that is true. My dad does have memories of being a young student of your father. One of the other things, the, the stories he says, is the, the influence he had was that his parents did, in fact, pull him from Hebrew school. I think his dad, they were going through a divorce. His dad pulled him from Hebrew school, and he remembers, I don't know why my dad would be in the meeting with, I think, Rabbi Meshloff and your father, and he remembers your dad getting on his knees and crying to my grandfather, begging him to keep the kid in the school. You know, that type of passion and emotion, well, it didn't work, unfortunately. (laughs) My dad was pulled, but... That stays with somebody. And, and years later, you know, on his journey, that came to mind as having, you know, teachers at that age. So, Again, you're not wearing tits. I just do want to, you know, jump on that, just that subject for one second, because, you know, we, we've had before here, you know, Ricky was on this, you know, on, on the podcast and, you know, he, he did a lot of things for the community. But a lot of the things, you know, a lot of these people who are special, it's not so much the things that people know about, you know, writing the big checks or being honored by, you know, the different... It's these small stories that no one would ever know about, and these small stories that they cared so much about, you know, just, you know, Barry Bass or, you know, some kid in Hebrew school that, you know, that is a lot of, you know, times what makes these people so special and so giving and, you know, for the community. So it just, it's very interesting, you know, you have a lot of people write big checks and that's what all, you know, the big books are about and this and that, but like, when you get to know somebody on a personal level, it's always something, you know, right. that is very that, true. Know, extra special. Right. And we we were all, and the community as a whole was obviously very saddened recently with with the passing of your father, Rifki. Um, Thank you. He had an outsized influence, you know, I would say international, you know, nationally, internationally, but most felt within the city. Rifki, the first thing, let's start talking about you, though. And I want to hear a little bit about your Ladino heritage, because I think it's actually unique and not something that a lot of, first of all, Ashkenazim, you know, sometimes don't know about that. Your father obviously comes, he was Ladino. And can you explain what Ladino is? No, I'm asking asking Rifki to. Yeah, I mean, wow, I'm not prepared for this question. (laughs) You should have my Auntie Flora on this podcast instead. But yes, my grandparents, well, they really were born in 
Brooklyn, but their family was from Salonica, Greece. So they were Saloniki and they spoke Ladino, which was like kind of like what Hungarian is. You know, it's like um, a combination of Jewish and the local language. Yeah. And so it's it's like a kind of like Spanish, Jewish Spanish is what mm -hmm. Ladino is. In fact, when I was in high school, I took Spanish. And when I would practice with my grandmother on the phone, she would yell at me because certain words meant something else in Ladino that were naughty. And I didn't know. Um, you were all asking who the Spanish teacher was. Go. <laughs> I remember the picture of her. I was actually thinking about <laughs> of course that. You were. Professor, <laughs> Professora Nittigman. It was Mrs. Yeah, okay. Nittigman. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I can see the picture in the yearbook. I just, yeah. I never took that elective, that or accounting. But their yeah, heritage but. was from Greece. Uh, uh, Salonica, Greece, and from Turkey, mm -hmm. from what I remember. Maybe a little bit of Spain, too. My father grew up, he was not religious. They were very traditional, Sephardic. They belonged to a Sephardic congregation. But there are different types of Sephardic. There's Moroccan, and there's Yemenite, and there's theirs is a very specific type. They weren't religious, but they did traditional, very traditional Sephardi things. And my dad, when he was bar mitzvahed, he was bar mitzvahed in a Sephardi shul. And there was a rabbi there who was very, very impressed with my dad and how smart he was and insisted that he get a, a Jewish education and go to Skokie Yeshiva, which is not Sephardic at all. So when he learned how to become from, he learned Ashkenaz under Rabbi Salavajic. And so when we were raised, we were raised Ashkenaz. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until my brother, like as an adult, was like, we're Sephardic. Why are we doing it this way? And uh, kind of flipped the switch and then started wearing Sephardi tefillin. And my dad started getting Sephardi mezuzahs and the whole thing. So I don't know how to really answer that question, I, you know, because <laughs> we weren't really raised Sephardic. And my mother's Hungarian. So there's like, you know, it's kind of like my big fat Greek wedding where you have the two different cultures. And I right. don't know. Yeah. And your your mom is is Chicago born and bred. Comes born from a and big bred. Chicago family, yeah. right? Yeah, very big, well known family. If you remember the, um, told you, Chicago Hebrew bookstore, Rabbi Gross was my uncle. Joe Gross. So my bubby, uncle my mother's Joe. Uncle, Joe. Uncle, Joe. uncle Joe, uncle Joe, uncle Joe, and Uncle right. Herman. All of the Grosses were. That's my bubby's family. So yes, actually, I heard on one of your other podcasts you were talking about Tosh. Was it? Ricky's, or it was Ricky's maybe, that there was a big gathering for Tashlich. Yes, sure. That's where my Zadie met my Bubby. That's where people uh, hooked up. Right. And he went up to her and he said, how about next year we do Tashlich together? And that's how they had their first uh, encounter and they got married. That's so, a good line. I'm going to mark that one down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to mark that one down. So we're yeah, sure it's very, very big Chicago family, my mother's side. And yeah. I can attest to that because I do have handy an article from the Sentinel August 31st, 1967, where it says, Rebison Rose Gross is still quelling over the coming marriage of one of her grandchildren, Shalamis Neidich, mm -hmm. to Morris's Forms of California, who studies at the Hebrew Theological College. And then it mentions like six other relatives, mean, if you want, Jeffrey Schwartz and Shelley Gross have graduated from Ari Crown, Shulamit Gross from Ari Crown Academy, mm -hmm. Yehuda Gross, Saul Schwartz, Sheldon Neidich from Yeshiva High. Michael Weiner from oh. Roosevelt College. Yep, those are all my either that's uncle, that's my uncle like, that's big. Yeah, Even there's a the, lot. In the press, they're covering in this family. Also, the Reifers. I don't know if you know the Reifers. Well, Elkie Reifer, Yankel and Elkie Reifer. So, Yoel and Svi, they're my cousins too because right. um, Elkie is a gross or no, she's a Schwartz, but she's. Her mother was my Bubby sister. So there's, I'm related to everybody in wow. Chicago on 
some level. Okay, so growing up in Chicago, you grew up in West Rogers Park. I did. Okay, and so you come from a family on one side, you guys are Ladino, the other side's a big Chicago family. Tell us a little bit about your childhood here in Chicago. Well, <laughs> oh my. You went to Ari Crown Hebrew Day I School. I went to Ari Crown Hebrew Day School, although I did want to go to Hill Torah, and every year I asked my dad and mom, and they said no. Why was that? They didn't think I was smart enough to do no, the Hebrew. No, why'd you want to oh, go? Yeah, why'd oh, you, why did yeah. I want to go Your there? Your friends were there? Because I, I like boys. Okay. And you got to talk to them there. Uh, and I had a lot of friends. I went to B'nai Akiva. I also went to Benos. I went to Mosheva. I went to Givat Ram as a little kid, so I had lots of different friends from everywhere, and uh, a lot of my friends were at Hill Torah, and I just really wanted to go there. By eighth grade, my dad said you could go, which he, of course, knew I'd say, no, of course, I'm going to graduate with my class. So I went to Ari Crown, and then I went to the academy, and by senior year, I was captain of the cheerleading team, so go Aces. Were there a lot of people from your class from Ari Crown that went to the academy with you, or not? Um, more girls than boys. It was a split on the boys' side. Maybe it was half and half because there were some girls who went to the girls' school. There were a handful. I've studied your yearbook. I can give you the. <laughs> I still have it too. Yeah. I don't I have, have it. I've just studied them. it at the Salzman's house. So I actually used to go to B'nai Kiva with David Draymond from Disturb. Did you uh, go to uh, Kvartzion? Which sniff? The one in Yashurin. Yashurin, yeah. Kvartzion. Shout yeah. out to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we used to walk together, and I'd, I'd hang out with Faggy Friedman, and um, you know there was like a lot of just different ages and we all hung out together actually at the academy when they put up the new building when they were my dad was raising money for it he had a fundraiser you're gonna like this story there was a fundraiser in his basement and he had lester crown there and he had steve nasseter and everybody had to get up and announce when they graduated from the academy and how much they were going to pledge so i'm standing in the back with my dad and delicia and my dad's like you got to go up there and you got to pledge something and i said do you think if i'm say, if they bring the cheerleaders back, I'll double. And he he cracked up and he says, you cannot do that. But I really wanted to because Rebbe Matanki was there and I just wanted to see his face. You should just know. They did not bring them back. They actually got rid yeah. of them during when I was there. Now, actually, yeah. I think you were the last year. So maybe I you was. can explain to us why there were no more cheerleaders because you graduated the I year did. before I entered into the school. I did. And there were no more cheerleaders. But the cheerleaders had to wear skirts, if I remember. Yeah. Right? So they, we actually wore pants. Pants. And then I, by senior year, I wanted skirts. So I got my dad to pay for her, the outfit, the skirt, but it had to be long. long and we had to wear like baggy leggings underneath. And of course, on the away games, <laughs> we rolled them up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. But I actually still have my cheerleading jacket, pom-poms, and gym shoes that we wore back then. So I still have them. So I went to the academy, and then I went to um, the Associated Talmud Torah's TI and got my degree as an early childhood education teacher. And I taught in Buffalo Grove under Yodis Greenfield. Uh, if you guys know John Greenfield. Sure. Jumpin' John. Yeah, so his mother was my mentor, and I, I worked out in Aptakistic Road and Anche Shalom, where Rabbi Gordon was. And I taught there for a couple of years, and then at Torah Tats, where now Rabbi Torsky Shul is, until I had Barry, and then I retired. So, so I you, could be you a always lived in Chicago? Always lived. Second, I didn't yeah. even go to Israel my year after high school, and I never left. I didn't go to New York. I got married and then got married and then got married, but I just, I stayed in Lincolnwood. I went a from- A real homebody. Yeah. I was going to ask, you didn't go to Israel without like a conscious choice? You just didn't want to uh, go? We or? had a house growing up in Israel, Mivis Zion, and I, I just didn't like Israel. I kind of felt like it was a big kind of Mosheva. I was kind of dirty and whatever. I just wasn't into it. <laughs> and you I didn't, didn't like wanna, Mosheva? I, I mean- 
I can't say I didn't like it because there's I was boys big... in Moshevah, there's boys in Israel. I mean, right? Know, okay, I just I don't know. I didn't want to go to school. Like I would have gone if I could just have a good time, but right. I didn't want to go to school there. So after of going for so many years and visiting, I didn't feel the need to go. So I just wanted to start my life. So I didn't go to Israel for the year. So I stayed in Chicago my whole life. Rifki, so growing up, you met, you mentioned the story with the cheerleading outfits, but mm-hmm. but your father was already like a, a famed philanthropist when you were... How early do you remember your father being kind of an outsized personality in the community? Do you remember yeah, him when he worked I, at Ari Crown? Or I that do. Was, okay. I, rem- I remember when my parents lived in an apartment. I okay. remember when we went to find the house on Fairfield and Jarvis, and it was like he was starting to make his way. I remember him being in the school and kind of checking up on me. And then He was when, a principal or a teacher? He was the vice principal. Vice principal? Okay. He was a Rebbe. It wasn't like we were these pharmacists when I was little. Like it right. started, but by probably fourth or fifth grade, he was starting to make it. And, you know, in his words, he'd say, I'm, I'm going to go build an empire. And, you know, there were kids who who would make fun of me or say things like, your father can't afford to buy you better boots or that kind of stuff. It started there a little bit. But yeah, I do. I do remember not having anything and then him starting working very hard to make it and just kind of how that all grew. Did you I notice did. that you had more friends once that started happening? You know what? That really didn't happen. No. That didn't happen. My friends, you know, they came over and they played at my house and they knew my dad. It was not, right. it really wasn't like that. In the house, I mean, everybody knows right. you guys are in the business world. There's a difference between who you are in the outside world and what you are as a business person as opposed to what goes on inside your house. I think also in Chicago, like when you grow up, you just, you grow up with your close knit friends and you go to, you know, you go to elementary school with them and you go to camp with them. I was going to say. And and they're they're your your same friends, you know, throughout. And yeah, like in in high school, I didn't know who was, like, I just didn't think about it. It's only like when you enter like, you know, college or you go to like, you know, Israel where everyone's a stranger. Then a lot of times, you know, the, you know, the wealthier kids will gravitate towards one another and the other, you know, so like. A lot of times, but like growing up in Chicago, like it, no one, I don't know. I just, I feel like it wasn't like a big thing back in the day. Like, I agree. It wasn't. Yeah. And and we all like, we were all friends, but also it wasn't, we didn't live like a big, it's not like now where everybody builds a bigger house and right. everybody's trying to up one another. Like the house we were in, we lived in it for 19 years until my parents, you know, when my parents got divorced or well, 16 years, my dad was with my mother. So in that house, it was a long time. It wasn't like he went and then built another one and kept, we, we lived a simple, you know, I ha- didn't not have what I needed. And, but it wasn't like I got designer clothes all of a sudden. You, you, you and didn't I was stick dripping. out at all. No, okay. I didn't. I just didn't. And I wasn't that kind of person anyway. I Were didn't. there people that did that? I, I don't even remember. Like, I don't think so. And I wouldn't even notice. I mean, I remember there was in my class that like, kids would make fun of each other, like the fancy kids. They made fun of them because they wore J. Crew. So it's like now, like, you know, if I would give like, you know, Josh's kids, J. Crew, you know, like, uh, what would they do to me? I'm just saying like, you know, now, you know, kids buy like $300 sweatshirts, you know, from like what Aviator Nation, whatever it is. But like back in the day, like J. Crew or Banana Republic was fancy. And even then, like I didn't wear that. It was, you know. Also fancy. back in the day, you had, it wasn't like now where you have a million pairs of shoes. You had a pair of gym shoes, boots for winter and your shabby shoes. And maybe in the summer, a pair of sandals. And I wasn't, I wasn't treated. My parents didn't do anything different. I really, know. you so, also needed creek walk shoes for Mosheva. That's right. The aqua socks. That's right. Yes, that's, that's true. true. That's a good call. That's a good call. <laughs> we'll get to the the full career later. Okay. But you know, one of your famous songs talks about the notorious Fountain Blue. Yes. So did those vacations kind of pick up during the, during that era where that's you guys started to vacation too. more? Yes. When I only remember being home for Pesach one year when I was six years old because my sister was sick and we had to stay home. Other than that, we always went away. So my like memories of 
winter vacation in Pesach were in Florida. It was like the second home. And we went to the Caribbean Hotel, which was a dump. But it was amazing kosher food. And that's when everyone was starting to make it. They started going. You know, uh, right. the Freedmen's went. My, my wife's family used to go always to yes, the Caribbean. Yes, of course. Yes. That's right. And it was every year. And there were people from out of town. And every year we'd look forward to get together. And it was just, that was a magical, magical time. And as they started, everybody in that group started making more money. We ditched the Caribbean and then went to the Eden Rock or the Alexander and the, eventually the Fountain Blue. But um, even back then, when we went to the Caribbean, we used to sneak into the Fountain Blue to go in the pool. We'd find somebody with a key or whatever. And it was just amazing. Yes. So we did do that. And then eventually everybody bought condos and then you right. that kind of thing. But I do remember it being like that. I mean, we knew we were. it was not many kids in my class were going on those vacations. We were special the people who went we felt special to be able to go you know my dad worked a lot so to go on those vacations it was a big deal and to spend that time and we always went with my aunts and my cousins and uh so Rifki, was your father one of these old school guys that it didn't matter how much money he had he expected you to kind of pursue your own career coming out of high school or was there pressure to have a career and make it on your own or was it more you were always going to be taken care of kind of type of thing he always was very supportive of anything we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, I, at least this is how I feel about my kids, I know that's how my dad felt about us, is that there was a joy in kind of raising us and then seeing what kind of people we were going to become and to help us, you know, with whatever we wanted to do with our lives and to go for our dreams. He was, he was helpful in getting us to our dreams. So he never, ex he wanted me to actually work for him. Of all the children, he thought I would be the best for that. And I used just to say, I see how unhappy you are when you come home. Why would I do that to myself? I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I always knew I wanted to be a mother. That was the thing I wanted to do with my life. But until then, I, you know, he didn't pressure me to go to college. He wanted me to do something and to have a purpose and have meaning and be able to get up every day and do something good with my life. And so I did become a preschool teacher. He was actually very, very that that he was most proud of, of everything I've ever done, because that was his favorite job too. Right. And when I was out in Buffalo Grove and I was teaching two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, I had him come. And I have an album of this, pictures. I had him come and take the kids into the sanctuary of the, of the shul and uh, show them, you know, what tefillin were and what a talus was and open up the Torah and show them the letters. And these kids, they were four and three years old. They were looking up at him like he was... God, I don't even know how to describe it. The, the look on their faces, the way he was talking to them. And he was on a high for like three weeks after that. I can imagine like you're just in a position of so much pressure and this organization and this business and this bank and that. And all of a sudden you get to sort of like push it to the side and just deal with children. Like no one who's judging you, no one who like everyone, they, they just want to hear what you're saying. No expectations. Right. right. And like, right. it's like, and especially, you know, for somebody who taught, you know, you know, years earlier, you know, just to get back there with like, there is no pressure. There is nobody judging him. There right. is and nobody pushing him. Right, and also they can him. be an influence. Right, like, and he's it, just there. And they're, it feels they're, good. Right, you know? he's just, they're eating out of his hands. Yeah, so. so he didn't ever, in regards to him, the reason I paused was just saying, because I'm always going to be taken care of. I was taken care of. And, you know, I'm grateful every day that I had that opportunity to then be home with my kids and not have to worry. Mm -hmm. But I, he didn't just want me sitting around then in 
you know, doing nothing. Like I always, if I wasn't working throughout the years that I wasn't working, I was raising my kids. I was always involved in charities and doing stuff. Even I remember growing up in the house where my parents were married that, you know, it wasn't, we didn't talk about the nursing home business. There wasn't any of that. When he came home, he was home to be with his family, but it was a home of a lot of Sadaka. My mother was the founder of Shalva, and there used to be meetings. The very first meetings were in our house. Uh, she worked for Beaker, helped with Beaker Holim, um, had like a helium tank, tank in the basement and did balloons to bring to people when they were sick. And my dad had people coming in and out all the time for, to talk to them and try to help them. So I think for my dad, it was more about we're lucky to have the life we have and to be able to not have to worry. We should then be using our time with our resources and our, our time and be giving. And that was more important to him than anything else. But if I wanted to do anything, whether it was singing or uh, later on working for Greystone, all those things, he was just in my corner. He was always there to elevate me and inspire me and push me. But there was no expectation. It was more like, I just want you to be the best version of yourself. And whatever I can do to help you get there is what I'm going to do. Low-key, hardest job, being home with your kids. Not, not so low-key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Sunday's the hardest day. Can't wait till Monday. Rifki, your dad was a very public person. He was involved, obviously, with tons of different charitable endeavors and um, I think just publicly out in, you know, in the business world and, you know, within the communities, you know, walking into Shoal, he was kind of like the star anytime you saw him. Was it ever difficult growing up kind of sharing your father with the public? So that's an interesting question, too, because when I was sitting Shiva, somebody asked me that, somebody who worked, I don't want to say his name, but somebody who, who worked for him. And he, he started off by saying, was your father around a lot when you were a kid? And I got really like, I wouldn't say agitated, but I was caught off guard because I didn't know how to answer that. And the truth is, when I was really little, he wasn't around a lot because he was building up his business. And when he was home, he was tired. And it wasn't until my parents got divorced. And then every other weekend and one night during the week, we were together and it kind of the dynamic changed. But when he saw how upset I was, he said, I don't I didn't mean to upset you. What I was trying to say is thank you for sharing him with the rest of the world. I did. We did have to share him. It was difficult. You know, it's different when somebody passes away and you kind of have like a bird's eye view now of the of your whole life. Uh, when he passed away, all the memories that were coming back to me weren't from the last 10 years or 20 years or even 30 years. It was all of a sudden I was remembering everything from when I was a kid. And back then I would have probably complained and said he was never around and he wasn't there for my birthdays, which he wasn't always there for my birthdays. But then I start to think of all the things he was there for. And as a parent, I'm like, wow, he was there for a lot. I mean, he was at graduations and he was at, he threw me a sweet 16 and a 17th birthday. And he took me for my sweet 16 to Italy and to England. And even just taking me to the academy before I had my license, uh, we'd go to Dunkin' Donuts sometimes and get, you know, a donut and he'd get a coffee. And what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll ask the next one. Okay. So what do you think that your father being such a public person yeah. that the public doesn't really know about your father? You know, what do you think that in terms of obviously after, you know, someone's passing and someone of your father's stature, there's outpourings of articles and sure. memories and, and events, you know, remembering their everything about them. Sure. What do you think it is about your father that maybe the public isn't doesn't know and okay. that maybe you're more aware of? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, too. I like your questions. That's why we have them here. Yeah. It's uh, the only reason why we <laughs> yeah. have them here. It's, would, not, it's not for the tits. Yeah. I would say that for me, growing up, 
being in his formats, the hardest part about that was two things. Well, and that's not really your question, but I'll, it'll, I'll answer it and it'll, you'll get why I'm answering it this way. But, you know, a lot of people always wanted, when they talked to us, they'd always want to get to my dad. You know, they'd say, oh, is your father in town? Do you think you can get me a meeting? They do that to my kids. They would do that to my cousins. And that was kind of awful because you never really knew who, who was sincere about asking about you or your life. But the thing that people don't know about my dad is that he really trusted people before they, unless they proved to be not trusted. And most people don't trust someone until they prove to be trusted. So because he had that kind of heart, he would do a lot of things for a lot of people with a handshake and then expect, really expect something in, of them, you know? And then I would see him so many times be heartbroken when they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. And he would either feel taken advantage of or just so let down. And then after a while, he would, he'd get over it and he'd say, you know, this is what Hashem wanted and, and then pick himself up and do it all over again. And I never really understood half the things that happened to him. If it happened to me one time, I'd be like, that's it. I'm done with everybody. And he just kept going back for more and more. And he just never lost sight of that. He always even till the very end, he always saw people, he trusted everyone and cared about everybody and wanted to give them a fair shot. And people hear that he was, you know, kind of loud and, uh, you know, strong willed, strong willed. Thank you. And all those things. But he also was just, he couldn't stand to see anybody cry. He just wanted to make things better for everyone. He was also like, very silly, like, and people don't know that either. Like, one of the things that I feel sad about in my eulogy that I left out, and this is part of the reason I agreed to even be on this podcast, is I'm like, okay, now I have an opportunity to let people know these two things, is that when I mentioned that he liked Elvis, he didn't like Elvis, he don't, loved- don't, don't get you all start on Elvis. Elvis, he, he loved, was terrible, what do you mean? <laughs> he loved Elvis, and every year he threw a Yortzite kiddish for Elvis Presley. <laughs> And it didn't matter if you were 10 miles away, you better show up. Like that was wow. his thing. We all had to be there every year. And my sister and I discussed how on his actual yard site, when it's the year is up, we are going to, to Graceland, <laughs> me and my husband and her and her husband. And that's where we're going to spend our day in his memory. So he also was like, I mean, it's simple things. Like he, he loved the Sun-Times newspaper. He would drink coffee every morning and read the papers for the sports section, but then kind of go through. And when he would come to Chicago and he would stay with me, he'd be, I still get that paper and I still read the paper every morning. And he'd be so excited to be able to read the paper. So it's like little things like that, that people just don't know. Like he was human. Like they, he was, he, I mean, he was, he was a regular person. Yeah. He way. was very much a regular person. Um, you know, and he was my dad. So he was a White Sox fan. He was a White Sox fan. Someone asked me to confirm that. Yes. Yes, he was a White Sox fan. That is 100% true. So I, I do have a question. You know, you mentioned, you know, you grew up across the street from me. You know, I remember you guys, you know, growing up, you guys went to Ari Crown and Skokie and the Academy. In recent years, you know, if people would, you know, look up, you know, who is Rabbi Morris's formist, they would say, oh, he's, a, you know, a big Telzer in Chicago. You know, so mm -hmm. like when did that sort of occur? I mean, did you hear about, you know, tells, you know, any of that growing up or was that sort of a recent relationship that he had with the Rosh Yeshiva or with some of the... I think he had a re relationship with every Yeshiva. Uh-huh. And that was just throughout... Throughout. Like, forever. Throughout. Okay. And he was, Even he, though it wasn't his Ashkafa, this, you know, he, he you know, no, he No, he gave to Chabad, he gave to tells, he gave to Brisk, he gave to everything. Mm -hmm. And he was honored at every dinner and we had to speak at every dinner, which was uh -huh. a nightmare too. <laughs> 
I mean, there's pictures of that all the time. I, oh God, did I hate that? Yeah. Um, and our family always kind of joked because we would sit around at these dinners and my dad would speak and we would hear him talk like that all the time. And so people who had heard him for the first time, they would, they would come on my God, he's the most amazing. And we, our family be looking at each other like, here it comes, here it comes, here comes that next time. We know what he's going to say. Or we'd give each other a look because it was just all the time, right. you know. Rifki, I want to fast forward a little bit. So I obviously got to know you growing up in Lincolnwood a couple blocks away. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, you had your two sons, Barry and Maury, mm-hmm. great kids. And my one of my first jobs actually was, um, I think you paid me 20 bucks a week. I used to pick up the boys and walk them a couple blocks down to Shoal. And I want to hear a little bit about your experience because, and I, and I think, you know, as a young kid at the time, and, you know, Rifki, you were at the time a single mother mm-hmm. raising two boys mm-hmm. and doing so, so successfully, right? We see Barry Mori nowadays, both married and established guys in their own right, right? And how successful you, they've become, right? And at the time they were, and I only say this because of how great they are now is they were really wild guys. Yes, they were. Well, Mori, not so much. Barry. <laughs> Barry was like 10 children in one. Yes. <laughs> walking, uh, walking them two blocks to show was one of the hardest jobs I ever had. Sure. So I want to, I want to hear because I think it's, I think it's admirable and I think it's courageous and I want to, and I think that a lot of people can learn from your experience about what that was like in terms of, you know, being successful as a single parent at the time in raising two young boys. Thank you. I appreciate that. They are good boys. It was a lot of work. My mother used to always say to me that when you get divorced and you have children, they're your divorce partner for life. And my grandmother used to say to me, the one I'm named after, she used to always say, when you have children, they didn't ask to be born. So when you bring them into the world, it's your obligation. You You have to put them before you and you have to make sure that they have a good and happy and healthy life. And so a lot of times, you know, when I used to go to conferences and stuff, the teachers used to say they never would have known that my kids came from a divorced home. And I worked very hard on that. It's hard. It's hard to be single. And I always made sure for my kids, because I came from a divorced home myself, and even though my parents did, a, you know, tried the best they could, there was a lot of things that were very difficult for me as growing up in a divorced home that when I got divorced, I was very in tune to what my kids would need as children in a divorced home. So for example, I always showed up to everything. It was important that I be at everything, whether you're playing basketball or they were had a chumish play or whatever. And I always made sure that Yudi was there too. And I had him sit next to me because I always hated that when either my dad wouldn't come and my mom would just come or they would be on opposite ends of the room and I'd be looking to see where they both were. And I didn't want my kids to have to do that. I wanted them to see that we were together. You know, if if it was my time with the kids and Yuri's mother was in town, I would insist that he take them because I want him to have a relationship. And so I always put them before me. And that was my joy. I was happy to do it because I brought them into this world and they didn't ask to be born. And I wanted to be successful in raising respectful, wonderful children and people. And so I always, you know, I, I bit my tongue and I looked the other way and I did whatever I had to do to make sure that they never felt, even when they were growing up, Yuri lived, as you know, he lived down the block from me. Right. I didn't really love that, but I knew for my children, it was a great thing because when I was growing up, if I packed my bag and I went to my dad's, if he picked me up, he wasn't going anywhere near my mother's house afterwards. And if I left a sweater there, I was out of luck. 
What was great about my kids living down the block is on Shabbos, if they missed me and they were with him, they can come by and get a hug. If they forgot a jacket, they can come get a jacket. And the same thing, if they missed Yudi, they could go. So we just tried to do the right thing. And Yudi never badmouthed me, never said a bad word, only said wonderful things about me. And I always said wonderful things about him. And when we needed to be on the same page, we always, if we, we might have argued behind the scenes, but in front of the kids, we were always on the same page. So, you know, it was hard. It was hard to be a single mother, but I had a great community. I had your parents who had us over a lot and everyone in Lincolnwood was amazing. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Certainly not. At the time I was going to Rabbi Tversky Shul and it was, you know, your dad and Renan Sugarman and all those people who used to dance with my kids on the other side, the Mechitza and Simchas Torah, because I couldn't do it. And I just reached out and I, I always told my kids that you can't go through life without asking for help. There's no such thing as doing it all on your own and nobody knows everything. That's why Hashem puts different people with different skill sets and different intelligence. And it's important to always ask people to help you. So I asked. I didn't just do it on my own. I, I did what whoever would be willing to help me. I, I asked for the help and I tell that to my kids all the time. It's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You have to get through life. Everybody needs there to help each other and that's how you grow and that's how you learn. And so that's what I did. I can actually attest to that. I mean, as a, as a younger kid, it's at the time I didn't know many, you know, divorced couples and whatnot. And you guys were probably, you know, my first impression as a divorced couple. And and seeing you guys work together as an employee of yours, um, and and then you know being with Yudi and did you file taxes by the way. <laughs> no, did you claim that? No. So, but but you know, but but seeing that relationship was you know very educational even from from a young age. You know, Yudi with the kids in Shoal. They used to sit at the table, the third table, with Izzy Goldberg, actually. He loved your boys. You know, the boys really grew up in, you know, in you saw that they came from a loving home, regardless of the parents being together or not. So I think that only, obviously, it's it's not really a surprise seeing them nowadays when I do see them, you know, how great they've become. So thank you. Hats off to you guys. Yeah. Thank you. I, I actually tell my, they're going to laugh if they're listening. They'll be listening to this and they're going to roll their eyes. <laughs> they better but, listen to every episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell them too. Um, I always tell them that there's four things. If you do this in your life, you'll be happy. These are the four rules. Number one, that you should be kind because in the end, kindness is all that matters. Number two is to get a good night's sleep because it's good for your skin and your hair and also your mind. So you wake up the next day and you can make good decisions and be productive and be a good person. And always wear your retainers because your teeth will shift. And I paid a lot for those braces. That's number three. And lastly, always carry a little bit of cash in your wallet. If you follow those four things, the rest of the of your life will be pretty good. I'm over for. I, 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 was, I was thinking the exact same thing. You know, all I have on me is I have shekels on me. I, I, I have no American. Dollars. I didn't wear my retainer. So, yeah, Rifki. In the, in the mid two thousands, you uh, launched a music career. Releasing mm -hmm. two albums, Why Not in 2007 mm -hmm. and Escape in 2003. And actually, mm -hmm. a friend of yours dropped off. 2013. 2013, mm -hmm. sorry. A friend of yours dropped off a little demo CD today that was recorded in. Oh, God. I, I have actually Rosebud Recordings, demo CD, which I think was yeah. mostly covers. It was all covers. It was That was my first attempt to see what it would be like so that I can get into these Probably shows. Probably bold choices with those covers. Janet Jackson, that's a, that's a tough cover. I know. I Share. Don't play it. Please do not play it. <laughs> I'm not gonna play it. I won't play it. Okay. But I. Well, if you want to hear it, you can just go. You can go to Ken Steiner. Don't they always? They, I did. I think I heard it at Ken Steiner. To CDs today to uh, garner some uh, questions. As did I. But yeah. So, some of the songs are, you know, first of all, great, great albums. Thank um, you. But the songs are very raw, 
right? Yeah. In mm-hmm. terms of the autobiographical material. Did you write all those lyrics? So the first album, I did not. I worked with a songwriter. I actually had to pay for those songs, with the exception of two that I wrote with Kenny Hechman from oh, Ken's see. Diner. I said, um, and those go. we sat together and we, you know, I worked with him on the concepts, but he really kind of wrote it. And my second album, I wrote a bunch of them, the lyrics, along with my producer who did the music. But the choices that I chose were things that I had to be able to connect to them. And like the big dog show, big, which is oh, your dad, go. that's your dad's it. favorite. Correct. He never sees me and doesn't say something. Um, that one was about my parents. That one yes. I wrote, obviously. I mean, that was obvious yes. that I wrote that. Yeah. So. And Rifki actually performed the albums. I did. I don't know if you guys are aware. I did it for charity, too. I did it uh, to raise money for Charlotte Static Medical Center, which at the time I was on the board, I was with working with Allison Sloven. And anytime I did anything, I always tied it into to raising money for something. So Right. But I just want to know, because obviously it, it takes vulnerability to be able to get up on a stage in front of people, A, release music, perform music. But then to do also do it about some very personal topics. Mm-hmm. So what was the intent there? Did you feel you just had to express yourself and get things off your chest? Did you want people to know, you know, whether it's, you know, your own relationships, your relationships with the family? What was the motivation that? Well, the reason I started singing in the first, I always loved to sing. I had bought a music lesson for a friend who loved singing. And it was like 130 bucks. And he didn't end up taking the lesson. He said he didn't have time and I didn't want that money to go to waste. And I always thought I would take lessons at some point when my kids were older, um, because now wasn't the time. But I went to the lesson and he said to me, I could see you on stage, which I thought he was insane. I said, I just want to learn how to sing better in in the car and in the shower. He's like, no, we're going to put a demo together and I'm going to introduce you to these showcases and take you to one. You'll see if I want to get you on the stage. So I felt at that point, even though it wasn't the greatest time in my life, I was a single mom at the time when I started, but I felt like I was putting all my kishkis into raising my kids and being a daughter and being a granddaughter and being a cousin and being all these other things. And there was nothing I was doing for myself. And I had been going through a bad divorce and I just wanted something that I could call my own. This is your outlet. That was my outlet. And I felt like I just, the first time I performed on stage was at the Lion's Den. So I performed there and I had a bunch of people from the neighborhood. In fact, I think Craig Frank was the one who videotaped it. And I remember getting up there thinking, I'm going to do this once. And if I love it, I'll probably want to do it for the rest of my life. And if I hate it, at least I tried. I was in that stage of my life where I was going to try things and not be afraid. And, you know, because I was on my own and I was living in a house with two little kids. I felt like I had to, like, grow up and stop being afraid of life. Was and this just take in chances. front of people you knew mainly or people that you had no so idea no, who was, it, I didn't know who any of them were except for the people that I asked to come. The way the showcases worked where there were four different singers that each got to sing four songs with a live band. You had to provide the sheet music and you had rehearsals before and you had to you know, bring in a certain amount of people. So I always brought in, you know, I think it was, you had to bring in about 10 people as time went on. And I did shows more and more. My dad used to come with his black hat friends and, you know, my mother would be like, are you going to get this out of your system? This isn't for a Jewish girl to be doing. And my father would be like, when's the next show? (laughs) I'm bringing this one. I'm bringing that one. He was my biggest fan. He actually played my CDs. He had them play them at his health club. His favorite song was 50-50, and he would make them play it at the health club. Um, and he would ask me for CDs. He'd have them in the car, like in boxes, and he'd just hand them out to all his administrators. Everybody <laughs> had to listen to it. Um, so he was he was a riot about my music. I remember looking out at the audience and very, very nervous. And after, like, the first, like, two sentences, I was like, my God, this is like 
my like this is where I belong. Like this feels like home, and I loved it. And so I sang for 15 years. I went to um, a singing lesson. My first teacher was a guy named Ed Ferran, who was part of a famous 60s band. It was a barbershop quartet. He was a twin, and he had two other twins, identical twins, that sang together. And they actually were on the radio. And he was the one who got me started and thought that I could be something or do something with this. And then he passed away, and then I went to the Fine Arts Building and had a teacher there. And I went once a week, every week, for 15 years. Do you play an instrument, too, or just singing? I don't. I don't play an instrument. I worked with great musicians, and at some point I felt like doing the cover songs were fun, but I wanted to try to see if I can do some original music, which is when I came out with the first album. And that was kind of like a test run to see. Like, I got a producer, and she had all these people do the backups, and I wasn't involved the way I was with the second album, where I did all the backup vocals. And it's funny, because when I was recording the second album... I would come home and play, like after being in the studio, I'd come home and play it for the kids. And they'd say, oh my God, like who's singing in the background? All these like amazing background singers. It's better than you, mom. I'm like, that's me. Like I'm doing, I'm stacking the like backup vocals. That's me. I loved it. I, I stopped when I was 40 because I'd done both albums. I felt like I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And I was... It was getting to be... No Grammys, though? No Grammys. Well, I didn't, it's, it's, it was just for fun. It's been 10 years. I think maybe yeah. it's time for a third uh, one. You know, you sound like my dad. So he's like, when's the other one coming out? See, so you have boys, by the way. She said after two minutes, then once after like, you know, when, when she was up there for like over two lines, and then she yeah. knew that this was like her passion, and she was there for 15 minutes, it was like the first two minutes of our podcast. So it's like <laughs> another 15 years. This is, this is our passion. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned, so again, so I'm getting Elvis, your music, your son's also a musician, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, One of them? Yeah. Yeah. He's better than me. I mean, music I to, is like, is, is a big part of your family. It is. Growing up, they always had me. I always played music in the house. I always sang. We were always singing around the house. Uh, my dad loved music. My mother loved, my mother loved to dance. She still loves to dance. We were just that kind of family. Like music was very important. And at, even as, uh, in high school, I kind of, you know, leaned on music to get me through a lot of stuff. I used to be in my room with my cassette tapes and I would listen to lyrics over and over and write them down and memorize them. Who was your favorite, like, like your go-to cassette in, in high school? Oh. I have an answer for you. Do you do? Yeah. Mari Gorenstein told me Janet Jackson would be your answer. Was that it? She's incorrect. Wow. <laughs> Mariah Carey. Gloria Stefan. Uh, I hate to say this because they're all, you're all going to think I'm crazy, but it was probably Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie. Well, Lionel Richie's awesome. Yeah, I can get behind that. Yeah. yeah. I did a lot of country stuff. I still love country or There's country much pop. More, the, the second album has a much more of a country aesthetic. That's what I noticed. I think both of them are uh, influence of country pop. Both okay. of them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the first album had a little bit of jazz in there. It had a little, like a bunch of different things. But well, I agree. There's, the there's, there's definitely a twang on that album. No question. The second one. No question. Yeah. 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 Okay, Rifki. So, so lately you've been living in Evanston. I have. What's that like? I mean, oh. you, you went from, you know, you raised your boys in Lincolnwood sure. and then, you know, you took your dad's house and, and, you know, you were, and then off to, you know, condo in Evanston. So what's yeah. that? What's Are that they trend? still wearing masks in Evanston? No. no. <laughs> Not in my building anyway. It was like downtown Evanston? Downtown Evanston. I'm okay, on, sure. on the corner of Sherman and Davis. Okay. I'm in right across from the Kosher Cineholic. And I'm in the building with the Target. So literally okay. I'm down there every day in my pajamas and slippers. It's like my pantry. 
and it's amazing. A lot of good coffee stores right there. Oh my gosh. The first few Sundays that we lived there, every Sunday we went to a different coffee shop to figure out which one we liked. Can you guess which coffee shop that Josh drives to every single day? I used to. Every I morning. Every morning in I, I used to, yeah. Uh, Newport? Newport was it. Exactly. <laughs> That's so my favorite it's, too because it's, it's delicious. Yes, I agree. And I'm not even a coffee drinker, but I love that one. <laughs> Yeah, and that's right across the street from me, too. We actually love it so much. My husband sold his car because we don't need to because we have everything there. We've got UPS. We've got the post office. We've got dry cleaners. We've got shoe repair guys. We've got cute little boutiques. We've got Mariano's. I'm actually like five minutes from Romania now. It's unbelievable. You just go straight down Chicago Avenue. You didn't, me- you didn't mention Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. We've got a Binnie's. We've got... Literally every CVS in our building is a target with CVS. And if you get a prescription, they'll bring it up to your apartment. It's wow. like amazing. Right. So, yeah, we, we, we ended up there because I really was so sick of taking care of a house. I've been when I got married, my dad bought me a small house, the one the Meiselmans are in, which they made it much bigger. But I started off there in St. Louis. And from the time I was 19 years old, I have been taking care of a house. And I wanted to be somewhere where you could throw the garbage down the chute you didn't have to take care of the, the lawn, and you had a maintenance guy in the building who literally would come the second you need anything. We wanted to stay in the Lincolnwood area. We went to go look at the Barkley. We actually looked at Jonah Brock's apartment, and I really wanted it. And my husband was like, we are not ready for this nursing home. We are like, just not doing it. We put in actually an LOI for an apartment, in case anybody doesn't know what an LOI is, that's a letter of intent. Uh, for, Josh didn't know. The old, for, the old Greystone terminal. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Jordan, did you know uh, what that was? Yes. Okay. Um, for an apartment where next to Hovave, where they were building condos. Right. That was uh, Ben sure. and Rami and Michael Daniels. Um, and then they decided uh, not to build. And so Ben told me, go find somewhere else. <laughs> At the time, Rabbi Leaptag had left, and everybody was kind of figuring out what their next steps were. And I got an, somebody knocked on my door and asked if they could buy my house. And I didn't want that offer to not happen. And so I said to my husband, where are we going to go? And he really loved the water. And we thought of maybe going to Lakeview where Maury is, but I didn't want to have to schlep 45 minutes to get to Hungarian, you know, every time I needed, you know, onion soup mix or something. So I remembered that there was a Chabad in Evanston. So we went on Google and we, we tried to find condos that were within 10 minute walk and we found our place and we met with Rabbi Klein and we went to go see the Chabad house, which has just been redone. It's magnificent. I actually sat Shiva there because it's easier than having the doorman understand why a hundred Jews were coming into the <laughs> building. And we just absolutely love it. We love it there. My mother said she had a dream that like, I'm, I'm working now on getting the A-roof up over there. Um, they've been working on it for 12 years, but they haven't had a woman involved. So um, I'm hoping to get it up before my dad's yard site. So my mom said she had a dream that I was going to like, everyone was going to come. Like I was going to be the pioneer and everybody was going to come, which I really hope they will. Actually, in my building, my neighbor above me is Jerry Springer. And there are lots. Wait, 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 back up. <laughs> yeah. He lives Hold in on. Chicago? Yeah, he was, he's been living in Chicago yeah, for years. Here. I don't know he still lives here. Yeah. He was the mayor of Cincinnati, like before yeah. his mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So wait, Jerry Springer lives above you. He lives above me and his daughter lived down the hall, but she just moved. She was uh, born almost blind. And so she's been living in Evanston and it's the neighborhood's been changing. So it was like getting When you come home to and he asks you where you were, just tell him you were at a great podcast and there's there's opening <laughs> openings for him. Should I can I quickly tell a story of Jerry Springer's chesed? Sure. Okay. I would love to hear it. I wouldn't, but go ahead. My dad has an ex-brother-in-law that died scuba diving in Curacao. My aunt and him had been divorced for many you know, decades, and he had been one of the uh, camera guys on Springer for years. He and uh, his crew of friends, they were close with Jerry for decades. 
And uh, in Curaçao, um, it's actually a Dutch island. So the body was taken to Amsterdam for an autopsy and whatever. And my cousin wanted to uh, pay to have the body brought back. It's very expensive. So she started like a GoFundMe type of thing to raise money. And she started to raise money. And then my aunt got a call from Jerry Springer that said, you know, stop the GoFundMe. I'm paying for it. Wow. And that was it. He actually, I had Great met man. him years ago because he was the honoree for Shari Tzedek Medical Center dinner because oh, his parents were Holocaust survivors. At the time I was on the board, I met him at the cocktail party the night before and I have a picture with him and I saw him in the halls and I showed it to him and whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not shy. Yeah, so his daughter lived down the hall, but they just moved. And actually Israelis bought the condo right down the hall from us. They're moving in, they're re- rehabbing the place. So there's lots of Jews in my building. There was actually even a bris on Shavuos in our building. Nice. Um, yeah, and so, you know, we've had, we just sponsored a Hanukkah party, my husband and I, to see who all the Jews were in the building. And so it's Did a really Springer cute- come? What? Did Springer come? No, he didn't come. <laughs> um, but- I, I, Evanston's great, I love it there. We love it. We love it. It's we walk up at the beach all the time. You know what? If the air goes up, you never know. know. The areas of, it's like the, the nice areas of Evanston are like the best in Chicago, and then like the bad areas oh, of yeah, Evanston yeah, yeah, are like yeah. the worst. There's parts a big of difference. Yeah. yeah, but we don't go there. Yeah, right. Of course, you know. And we walk on the beach every Shabbos. Not, well, not in the winter, but in the summer. We just go down to the beach. We love I mean, Northwestern. There's guys got yeah. a college feeling. Yeah, it's it's a lot amazing. of energy. We, we, we've Good become friends with some, a lot yeah. of the students. They've job. come to eat by us. We've like adopted them. We feel young. Right. Like it's it's amazing. And you walk through the campus to get to Shoal and the buildings are magnificent. Um, I'm sure you all watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. Of course. And you know um, Jeff, uh, what's his name, Garland? Is that yes. Not Garland. Yes. Gar- yeah, so he spoke on campus and we just like on a Saturday night, we walked over to one of the halls. and Got we listened in trouble to- recently, didn't he? He did. He? Yeah. 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 Really? yeah, he's bipolar, and he yeah. had, he got kicked off of the Goldbergs. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, and he talked about that actually. But so we we're like we're like campus people. We like love it. Young again. <laughs> yeah. That's great, Rifki. What responsibility do you feel with your father being gone? Do you you know your father was obviously involved in his charitable giving and supporting lots of institutions. Do you feel that same responsibility to kind of fill his shoes at all? That's a good question too. My siblings and I discussed that after he died and we're like, how are we supposed to you carry, know, on, carry on? And honestly, first of all, we can never be him. Absolutely not. We, we're not capable of it. And we thought about it. We said, maybe we should do something that, you know, for dad, the three of us together. But then we discussed it and really we decided my dad always was involved in the stuff we were involved with too. And so for me, I, you know, my sister is was doing some kind of project with him for her kid's school, I said, you, that's what you should do to carry on his legacy is continue doing the work you were doing with him. I don't know what my brother's going to do, but for me, it was the A-Roof because before my, my dad passed away, we talked about it. He knew how important it was to get this A-Roof up so that when I have grandchildren, I could take them to Shoal. And he knew the importance of it connecting to the hospitals. When my grandmother died, she died on Shabbos, and he walked to Evanston from Lincolnwood in the dead of winter. They couldn't carry tissues. I know that sounds insane, but it was freezing. And it's important for people, for the community, to have the Evanston A-Roof. I went to go visit him before he went into the hospital. And Rabbi Klein had asked me, to be the MC for the Hanukkah lighting ceremony in the square. And I, my dad was sick on, on the chair next to me, and I said, can you believe it? They want me to be the MC. And he's like, you got to do it. I'm like, I don't want to do it. He's like, you got to do it because there are going to be politicians there, and you got to meet them so that you can get the Eruv up. So when he got into the hospital and he was sick and he was dying, it was time for me to go 
to do this thing and I didn't want to leave him and he told me to go. And I went, and I remember that night, like saying to my husband, how am I supposed to, like my dad's sick, how am I supposed to go down now and be like, rah, rah, Evanston. And I said, you know, what? I, I took a deep breath. I said, I'm going to go do this for my dad. And I went downstairs and I did the whole spiel and I talked about how Evanston is like Happyville, which it is, and how happy we are there. And, you know, what, there was like, I don't know, hundreds of people in the square. It was amazing. And after we were done and we walked back across the street to the apartment, I kind of like almost fell and I just was sobbing. And I just was like, I just did that for you, Dad. And I called him in the hospital. He wasn't speaking so much. Then I just said, Dad, I, I did what you asked and I, you know, it was really successful and I met a lot of people. It was wonderful. So I knew how important it was for him for me to do this. And that's like what I want to, and it doesn't, it also doesn't, it's interesting because I was never involved with Chabad. I had nothing to do with Chabad, but my dad actually gave most of his tzedakah to Chabad. I didn't pick the lineup of rabbis for his funeral, but there was not a Chabad rabbi, which I thought was a little bit strange, but it, it's not, it doesn't go above my head that I ended up like for the last chapter of my life to be in a Chabad shul and involved with Chabad, and, you know, doing things with Chabad. And I know he loves it. Like for Shloshim, I sponsored Friday night dinner for all the students. 90 students came. Wow. And my son, Maury, spoke about my dad. And everybody came up and, you know, said how, how they didn't know my dad. But just, I was going to say, had they heard of him before? Uh, most of them had not. Almost all of them had not. Um, and they were just like, kind of like they, they thanked us for sharing a little piece of my dad. And I was, I just could feel him there that night. And I was just like, he's, he's loving this. He's absolutely loving this. So, um, that's what I want to do. I want to focus on getting this A-Roof up and, uh, it goes back to what you said before. And I was, he wanted you guys to shine doing your thing That's right. and your way of memorializing or remembering him or, or, or continuing his legacy is, is doing your thing and giving back to your thing. Right. It's not like there are people who called us for money and I'm like, I'm, I'm happy he was there for you, but that has nothing to do with me. Like I'm not, that doesn't mean anything to my dad. Wouldn't want us to do that. He'd want us to do the thing that means something to us that, that benefits our life and helps with our friends. Going back, to your question very early on about like, you know, what my dad was like and what people don't know. My dad also was like very invested in our friends. Even when he was would come to visit me now, he, when we'd sit on the couch and just catch up, he'd always say, you know, which of your friends you still talk to and what's happening with them and ask about, you know, elite, he'd call her Alita Wilk, who's Alita Byrne, or he, you know, Mari Gornstein, Mari Berger. And he'd say, ask me about all these people and what's going on in their life. And he, he always was like, you know, to my friends, he was my dad, you know, and he just was like, he just cared. You would think like that wouldn't matter to him or he wouldn't be paying attention to those things, but he really did. He paid attention to anybody he met and they told a story about their kids. He would remember their names. He would remember their birthdays. He was really like amazing like that. So if you don't mind, I would like to tell you two more amazing stories. Please. During Shiva, I was hearing all kinds of stuff about my dad that I never heard. He never really just shared like the things he did. He did them and he moved on and he didn't do it to make an announcement. It was just because that's who he was. And there's no way on earth I'm ever going to know every story. There's thousands of them. And I would tell people I can't know it all. So this is for all the listeners. If you have a story about my dad, just keep it in your heart and remember him. There were two stories that stood out from the people who came to tell us stuff that I had never heard. And it just, this is who my dad was. One was that in, that years ago, when he was in Israel, he was in a cab, and he left his wallet in the cab, and there was lots of money in it. A chassid came in, and he found the wallet, and he 
tracked down my father and he returned the wallet. My dad said to him, you know, he opened up to give him some money to thank him. And he said, I don't take money for mitzvahs. I don't do that. And my dad's insisting, I have to pay you back. I have to do something. He's, I'm sorry, I'm not taking it. And he left. So then my dad called around to find out who this guy was and found out that he had seven children in day school and couldn't afford to pay tuition. So my dad paid tuition for all seven kids till they all graduated eighth grade. Wow, and the guy, wow. the guy came to him and said, I told you I didn't want anything. And my dad said, too late. And all I kept thinking was, first of all, if the guy would have just taken the money from the wallet, you know, how much money my dad could have saved. But also, like, I, I would just love to pick up the phone and ask him, like, do you remember that? Because he'll probably be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did do that. You know, that kind of thing. So that one kind of blew my mind. And then there was another story of a, years ago, and it must have been like in the 70s or the beginning when he was starting his career, some administrator hired someone, some Jewish kid to come work for him. And somebody at Shul introduced him to my dad. And my dad said, who are you? You know, like that kind of thing. And he said, oh, you know, I, I'm going to be working for you. And my dad said, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And he said, well, I have, you know, three little kids and I'm married. And, and my dad says, so where do you live? And he says, I live in an apartment. And my dad said, why you live in an apartment and not a house? He said, because I need money for a house. He said, how much money you got? He said, I have, have $25,000. How much does it cost to get a house? He said, about eighty. So my dad says, okay. They talk a little bit more. Two days later, my dad's secretary, Ruth, calls this guy and says, Morris wants to see you in the office. And he's thinking, I'm getting fired. I've only been there three days. I've already screwed up. It's over. And he walks into my dad's office and he throws him a check for 80 grand and says, go buy a house. Wow. It wasn't crazy. even like he took the 25 out. He probably yeah. figured he needed that for furniture or whatever else. And he wouldn't, Incredible. he never said anything about those things. He didn't talk about it. I mean, he was just, I also remember growing up that he would have people come live with us for like six months at a time. Like people were getting divorced and needed a place to stay or somebody who was in the, in the middle of a very bad time. And people would be like living in our house. Which was interesting, you know. Well, I, th I think it goes back to what you all said at the beginning was like, you, know, you see the name and you see the big suckers, but you have these little stories. I'm not yeah. little, but yeah, that's yeah, those it, are the most incredible it things. It seems to be a lot of the, you know, I, I, you know, I've you know, heard a lot of stories and a lot of people from the previous generation who are big givers, but you hear a lot. I mean, you know, my in laws and, and other families mm -hmm. of this community, people stayed at their house, they opened their doors, anybody to everybody, upstairs, downstairs, one night, two weeks, whatever it is, family, kids, no kids, like, that was just the mentality. I mean, you know, nowadays it's like hard to get like a, you know, like a cup of coffee in someone's house, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, let alone like, all right, come in we'll figure it out. You stay. All right. You don't stay, whatever, you know, stay mm -hmm. in your time. No, but I think it shows the sincerity, right? No, it's not 100%. about, right. The giving is not about. Right. Nobody knows these things. Putting, in fact, it could be that the institutions, you know, demand that they have the name on the building because, you know, it says something about the institution, whereas the giver really is because he wants to give, right? right? And so it didn't matter if it's a school with a big building or, you know, a private individual that no one will ever hear the story. Right. And for me, with this Aruv, I would like to name it the Morris's Formis Evanston Aruv because it'll be the first thing in Chicago that is named after him. Everything else, it said the Morris's Formis, but it was dedicated to, or, you know, Rabbi Giffen or to my grandparents or whatever. There was nothing that was his, this will be the first thing that is actually in memory or in honor of my father. So I'm really excited about it. And I hope it'll, it'll happen. With the passing of Shale Bellows and Jack Reichenbach, who were like fathers to me too, that's the hard part because I feel like every time somebody like that passes away, it's another person who is not on this earth who really knew my dad. And there are very few that really knew him, like knew him. And so every time somebody's 
passes away, it's 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 like a shock to my system. You know, it's mm-hmm. like another another wonderful person who's not here who knew him. So that's very difficult. Yeah. Well, Rifki, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your father's legacy thank and you. talking about your life and the legacy that you're building. Thank so you. we wish you best of luck on the Erv. Thank you. Which we all hope to come to the celebratory party for when it sure. comes up. Well, when you when is there like a day that you think this is going to happen by? I formed a committee and I told them they have until. <laughs> well, Josh, <laughs> until because my, until I mean, my dad's yours. I mean, Josh goes to Evanston. I know, would daily. love to be there. Josh, yeah. you I'm should a be a big on the committee. Fan, yeah. yeah, Josh can go to Newport on Chinese <laughs> <laughs> and carry back his coffee. They have great pour overs there. Yes, but yeah. thank you so much, Rifki, for coming thank on, you for having me, opening up, and uh, we appreciate it so much. I appreciate it. Take us out. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs>